if we stop using pesticides, then Kenyans are going to die of hunger. But then, you know, that poses the question of should we have unsafe food? What should be the, 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 the conversation we are having here? Should it be that Kenyans are exposed to unsafe food or are we thinking that Kenyans are going to die of hunger? This is The Butterfly Effect, a podcast that shows the big impact a small action can do. Tali Orad is talking to those special people that make a difference with nature and trees. Welcome everyone to The Butterfly Effect. My name is Tali Orad. I'm your host and your butterfly here. My special guest today is Claire Nesika Akello. Claire is a Wangari Matahi scholar and leads the food campaigns at Greenpeace Africa where she trains local communities on ecological agriculture, food, and seed sovereignty adaptive mechanism to climate change, campaigns for their adoption by smallholder farmers and its inclusion in agricultural policies in Kenya. She has previously worked at A Rocha Kenya as an environmental education officer and there won the Wangari Matahi Scholarship Award in 2015 for her environmental education work with school children in Budalangi. Claire is also the founder of the Hummingbird Foundation, an initiative that seeks to improve nutrition among school children going through the establishment of organic food gardens in rural and urban areas. She is a graduate of Technological University of Kenya with first-class degree in environmental resource management and currently pursues Masters of Science in Management of Agroecosystems and Environment at the University of Nairobi. In her free time, she loves reading, dancing, and writing articles on her eco-blog, which has been nominated twice for BAKE, Kenya's Bloggers Award. Welcome, Claire, to The Butterfly Effect. Thank you so much, Tali, for having me today. I'm pretty excited to be part of the conversation today. Me too. So I would like to start from, from the beginning. So you are a Wangari Matai scholar. What does it mean? Yes, I am a Wangari Matai scholar. That means that I was awarded the Wangari Matai Scholarship in 2015. And the Wangari Matai Scholarship is named after the Nobel laureate, um, the late Professor Wangari Matai. Mm -hmm. She was a renowned environmentalist across the world and she came from Kenya. And so the scholarship is awarded to young girls between the ages of 18 to 25 who are engaged in community work that is environmental based and they're also studying at the university. So at the time, I was undertaking a degree, a bachelor's degree in environmental resource management. And I was also running a community project in my village where I was teaching school-going children how to make briquettes and to plant trees. So that's how I got to win the Wangari Matai Scholarship. So tell us a little bit about the, the village. I mean, it's not something that, I mean, every girl wakes up and decides, well, I'm going to teach kids about the environment and to plant trees. That's true, Tali. The village has a very special place in my heart. I grew up, um, not really grew up, but I spent my younger years in the village with my grandparents. Although I was born in the city, raised, um, I've been raised partially in the city, partially in the village. So I don't know what to call myself. Maybe I'm a blend of a village girl and a city girl. I don't know. But um, <laughs> the village has a very special place in my heart because 
I spent my younger years there with my grandparents and my grandmother was uh, was a herbalist. Mm-hmm. And uh, that essentially meant that she knew a lot of trees and their uses. And so most of the times we were in the field with my grandmother or we were in the hills, you know, on the hills trying to to get something to, to heal something, you know, like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember vividly that pregnant women would particularly come to our home. She was also a midwife. So she was a herbalist and a midwife. So I remember a lot of the times pregnant women or mothers with young kids would come to our home and they would always, you know, say, my kid has a problem. Uh, my kid has this and this. Can you give me something? Or I'm feeling this rash on my skin or my child has this. Mm-hmm. Can you recommend something? And my grandma, weirdly, she knew what to give. Yeah. And so that's where I picked that love for environment, the love for trees, the love for nature. So it emanated from the village and our homestead had a lot of trees. So I knew most of them in my native language. So when I embarked on studying environmental science, that's when I started connecting them to now the scientific name. And Mm -hmm. the one thing that really amazed me is that what my grandma, I still remember some of the trees that my grandma used to, to get medicine. What amazes me is that whatever purpose she was using them for or illness she was using them for is mm-hmm. what is still recommended in some of the books because now, now I know the trees by their scientific name and then I'm able to look at their medicinal value and what they are used for. And I recall clearly that my grandma was using that that kind of tree for that particular illness and for me it it really blows my mind away because she didn't have a formal a proper formal education like I have she mm-hmm. went probably to grade two in during her time but she still knew what tree was used for what and that's very critical in indigenous knowledge that I am lucky to have gained from such a, an early age and something that has shaped my career, has shaped my outlook of of the natural world and what I do today. Do you use that knowledge? Do you pass it on? Yes, I do. I pass that knowledge on. I run a volunteer organization. It's called the Hummingbird Foundation. So basically, the Hummingbird Foundation takes a little bit of of a different approach from what my grandmother used to do. But I still teach kids how to grow food, but organic food. And these are children in the informal settlement. These are children from my village. And so I teach them the value of those herbs. How can they use some of the trees and the herbs to control pests and diseases? on their vegetables without them using toxic pesticides. So still, in, in a way, I, I find a way of merging that knowledge with the, the, the knowledge my grandmother taught me to teaching these kids. It's not all lost. I find avenues in which I can I can add that, that value. I can teach kids about some of those trees, what are their importance. And it doesn't just limit them to the vegetable gardens only but we also have environmental lessons where we talk about what are some of these useful trees like the neem tree for example is very useful for the people from for my for my people in the village we call it marubaine and we use it for almost everything so that's 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 how i am trying to to pass on the knowledge to young kids because i believe that when they get to learn this thing when they're still young they're able to pass on this knowledge and then also develop a relationship with the natural world like I did when I was when I was young. 
do you find that they pass it along to their parents and their parents start to apply it as well? I think so. I remember when I started one of the gardens um, in, the, in the slum called Madhare, the parents were not very... We're not very cooperative and supportive of the of the program because we were running it as an after school program so the kids had to stay behind and over the mm-hmm. weekends they had to come to school and sometimes would ask them to bring water so that we can you know we can water the garden and some of the parents were not very supportive of that idea and I recall one time once the schools were going to close so we had a, a ceremony where the kids harvested the vegetables from the farm you know the coriander the spinach the kale mm-hmm. and all that the kids harvested and then we rewarded one of the kids who was really hard working who used to take care of the garden more than everybody else we rewarded him by paying his school fees for the next time wow and i think that gave the parents a different outlook when they saw the kids coming home with vegetables and they saw them you know they saw them like really enthusiastic about about the garden about what they've been learning and so for us that was like really a changing point and so nowadays you find that some of the schools that we no longer visit because of you know time and all that the kids really want this program but because of the capacity that we have we have to limit to only two schools or three schools Because yeah. it's not just a one one of kind of thing it's a lesson we take them from one lesson to the other like we start with learning about the soil what's the importance of the soil what does the soil um what's the what's the role of the soil in terms of you know storing carbon where are soil microorganisms what do they do in the soil and then we move from the soil we go to plants what are some of the beneficial plants so it's a step by step process that takes time to actually yeah. teach the kids we just don't do it as a one off program you also work at greenpeace africa right Yes, I do work at Greenpeace Africa. I had the the food campaign at Greenpeace Africa. I've been working there for the past four years now on on the food campaign. Basically, the food campaign, we are looking at creating awareness around agroecology, around ecological farming. I'm trying to reduce the number of farmers that are dependent on toxic chemical pesticides and seeds that are coated with pesticides as well. So basically it's just training farmers on on ecological farming advocating for policy change because most of the agricultural policies in Kenya are geared towards industrial agriculture so advocating for policy changes that that support ecological farming and that you know also support smallholder farmers who are interested in moving from from conventional farming to ecological farming and what is the what are the challenges that you're facing The challenges that that we face one is that um the budgetary allocation so in Kenya agriculture is a devolved function what i mean by that is that we have the national government and the county government so the national government um has a budget and this budget is shared amongst the 47 counties that we have in Kenya so each county gets a certain amount of money and mm-hmm. agriculture sits with the county level the implementation of the of the any agricultural program sits with the county level so what happens is that most of the laws and the money that is set for agriculture is in support of industrial agriculture we don't have any budget specifically set aside for smallholder farmers who are interested in ecological farming or any kind of policies that support smallholder farmers who are 
growing food using agroecology. And that's a major, major challenge because you find that in areas like um, Ukambani, Ukambani is an arid and semi-arid land in the on the eastern on the eastern side of Kenya. We have mm-hmm. farmers there who are practicing agroecology, and being that being that they are in an arid and semi-arid area, they are in need of water. So if we don't have a policy that provides for them this water, then we have a problem because now the amount of food that these farmers are able to churn out will be little. And if the food will be little, then we're looking at a situation where we we have food insecurity in the country. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, there's also the, you know, the, the transition from growing food using toxic pesticides to now learning how to grow food in line with nature, which we call agroecology, applying all the ecological principles in agriculture. And you find that farmers who've been entirely dependent on, on, on pesticides to grow food find it really difficult to transition because, you know, they are used to the to the easy to the easy and and quick solutions you know where you walk to an agrovet shop and you buy a pesticide and spray on your farm but not trying to do the work of you know learning about integrated pest management learning about the natural ways of deterring pests from your farm so it's been a little bit of a challenge for farmers to get that change but now that they've gotten it i think a lot of them do not want to go back because of the costs some of these pesticides are really more expensive. Yeah, they're really expensive. Some of them the farmers cannot afford on and and if they have to afford them, they have to take a, a loan for them to be able to afford that. So it seems like it's a no-brainer at least for me thinking okay, so at the beginning like you learn any new skill, it's just going to take you a little longer to to understand and to to apply it, but at the long run, it's more if we look at it at the business perspective right it's more cost effective for them to do it exactly it's cost effective for them and then the other thing is that it guarantees safe food for the last i think 3 years uh, we've been working on um, on a campaign on, on no more toxic pesticides in Kenya. So there's an organization, a civil society organization called Root to Food. Um, it partners with Greenpeace. And they did a white paper that actually showed that the pesticides, most of the pesticides used in Kenya have been proven, scientifically proven to be either carcinogenic or they have an impact on the human hormonal system or the nerve system. Or they are toxic to the aquatic environment or the you know, aquatic aquatic life in general, the terrestrial life. Right. And so we've been trying to campaign for a ban or a withdrawal of these pesticides from the Kenyan market. And that, that has been met with a lot of opposition from the proponents of the pesticides. You know, the argument that if we stop using pesticides, then Kenyans are going to die of hunger. But then, you know, that poses the question of should we have unsafe food, or what what should be what should be the 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 conversation we are having here? Should it be that Kenyans are exposed to unsafe food, or are we thinking that Kenyans are going to die of hunger? You know, if you have unsafe food at the end of the day, that food is 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 just as as um as similar to one saying I don't have food, right? Because that food is not of acceptable standards. When we talk about food security and food sovereignty, we're talking about food that is locally relevant. We're talking about food that is safe, food that is of, of the required standard. 
But if the food we have as Kenyans is not safe for consumption, then we have a problem. And that is not the only issue we have. The other issue is that a lot of the farmers who also use these pesticides when they're spraying in their farms, they don't have um, proper suits. It's called a hazmat suit, the protection suit. Mm-hmm. Most of them don't have that. So it means we are exposing the Kenyan people. We are ex- exposing smallholder farmers to toxic pesticides. We are exposing our children to toxic pesticides. We are exposing the Kenyan consumers to toxic pesticides. And we are looking at pesticides such as um, chloripyrifos, which was banned last year in the US, I think in 2021. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was stopped for use and food use particularly was that it was found to have neurological developmental impacts on children. So it means that that pesticide yeah. is particularly, it, it particularly affects children. But you won't believe this, that pesticide is still registered for use in Kenya. And it's used on wheat. And in Kenya, we grow wheat. That pesticide is also still used to control aphids on roses. You know, Kenya grows a lot of roses around the Lake Naivasha region. Mm-hmm. And the most sad thing is that traces of that pesticides was found in the waters of Lake Naivasha. Lake Naivasha is a freshwater lake in Kenya, Tali. And there are communities around there that depend on it. We have women and kids and families there that depend on it for, for water. So you can imagine if they are drinking water that has traces of this toxic pesticide, what's going to happen to the children? And that's why you find that uh, organizations such as Greenpeace, we've been really vocal on campaigning against these toxic pesticides in Kenya. We're not saying that all pesticides should be removed from, from use in Kenya, but what we're saying is that the pesticides that have been proven to be harmful, we would like to have them removed from the Kenyan market because the impact they have on the environment the impact they have on the human beings is is detrimental and we cannot afford to sit back and watch Kenyan consumers die. We cannot afford to sit back and watch Kenyan children die because most of these impacts of toxic pesticides, you know, some of them have short-term and long-term impacts. And the long-term impacts can take as long as two, three or four, five years. And then we would be talking about, oh, Kenyan kids are dying of cancer. Kenyan children are dying from so many other illnesses that are attributed to, you know, um, toxic pesticides. So how do you encourage farmers to change? We train farmers on alternatives. You know, when you're talking about a problem, it's always feasible to give a solution. Mm-hmm. And so we always train them on how best they can control pests and diseases on their farms using natural methods. So if it means they have to use biological control ways to control pests on their farm, then we train them on that. And initially I spoke of integrated pest management. Farmers using several practices to control pests on their farms. So it could be that farmers are carrying out intercropping or mixed cropping or you know, just changing how they grow the food on their farm, or planting their, their their crops together with herbs that actually deter pests, 
or using pest traps on their farms. You know, there are so very, so many various ways in which these farmers can do this. So we train them on integrated pest management. And right now we're also lucky that we have biopesticides in Kenya. We have biocontrol ways in Kenya. We have organizations and companies such as Dudutech and, and Isipe that are coming up with biological control ways of, of controlling pests. So solutions are there, and, and for us in our capacity, we don't want to be the org- activist organization, the advocacy organization that dwells on the problem, but rather mm-hmm. highlight the problem and showcase the feasible solutions that can actually be taken up by farmers. And also, we keep on encouraging consumers to buy organic produce from farmers because when the farmers have a market, then they are motivated to produce more. But if they don't have a market, then they are not likely to produce more. Right, right. Now, you mentioned wheat. And before you were talking about uh, scarcity of water for the farmers, and correct me if I'm wrong, but wheat is one of the crops that needs a lot of water. And Kenya has dry climate, there is a drought. Is there anything that are the challenges that the, the, the farmers are facing that may be suggesting them other alternatives? I mean, instead of, I don't know, growing wheat, grow something else? Of course, there are challenges when it comes to, to water um, of recent we've we've had really varying um rainfall mm-hmm. in kenya we have two rainfall seasons so the long rains we get them from march to may and then we've got the short rains in october till december and that has not been the case like last year we didn't even get a lot of rain during the short rain season and the long rain season um this year in january we're getting a lot of rain as opposed to the rain coming in March. So we have had variations in rainfall. And of course, farmers who grow wheat um, have had issues because of the of the scarcity of the rain. And, and most of the agriculture, it's important that I mentioned that most of the agriculture carried out in Kenya is rain-fed agriculture. And so farmers have had a lot of, a lot of issues with that. And of course, wheat requires a lot of water. And what we're telling farmers is that um, you can diversify. You do not have to grow crops that that need a lot of water. You can grow drought-resistant crops and uh, crops like millet, crops like sorghum. We have indigenous vegetables that, such as spider plant that don't need a lot of water. So it's that aspect of giving farmers an alternative. What, what are they diversifying to? These are farmers who've been growing wheat for a long time. So what are they mm-hmm. diversifying to? Is there a market? It's just a matter of assuring them that there's a market for this food that you're asking them to diversify to. And then also teaching them how do they diversify? How how do they make the change? How do they make the transition? You know, and, and I believe that's really important because we're seeing that a lot of farmers right now are are embracing agroecology. A lot of farmers are embracing organic farming because now Kenyans are very they are aware, they are conscious of the kind of food they are consuming. So if you're going to bring to the market food that has a lot of of, of toxic pesticides, let's say, for example, wheat, you're going to bring wheat that has a lot of toxic pesticides, then chances mm-hmm. of you having a market are very high because people now want food that is safe, food that is you know healthy, food that has been grown in a healthy manner. And that's why it's critical to train farmers. So even if they are growing wheat, 
they can grow wheat alongside something else. They don't have to only dwell on wheat because, you know, that's a monocrop and that kills the agricultural diversity that is supposed to thrive on a farm. Right. And, I mean, climate change affects mostly... Mm-hmm. It's mostly affecting countries like Kenya, mm-hmm. um, and which is really unfair and really frustrating, but it is the case. Using your area of exp- expertise, anything we can do to prepare ourselves, whether it's individuals or whether it's Kenyan farmers or anyone, what, what tips would you give? We are experiencing um, the impacts of um, climate change. And unfortunately, Kenya is one of those countries that is is hit hard, the droughts, the floods. Just recently, we had about 2.1 million Kenyans, you know, um, being mm-hmm. at risk of, of starvation because of, of drought. We've had pastoralists in the northeastern part of Kenya losing their livestock to drought. And I think the government has a role to play and I say it has a role to play because we need a proactive government most of the time our Kenyan government and this is not to lay blame but to say the truth as it is our Kenyan government reacts to disasters once they've happened yet we have a meteorological department that actually forecasts and tells us okay we were going to we're going to have a drought we're going to have floods and all that and so it's important for the government to plan in advance i'll give you an example like the recent flash floods that occurred and the flash floods killed thousands of livestock in marsabit mm-hmm. marsabit is a northern northeastern part of kenya and it was just a matter of time it was just a matter of the government telling the pastoralists that there's been a forecast of flash floods and so we ask you to move your livestock to a higher area. So these are pastoralists who had just survived drought. Their meager livestock survived drought only to be killed by flash floods, the water they were looking for. And that entirely, the blame goes to the government because they get their we have a department that is responsible for that. We have a whole ministry that is responsible for that. And the other thing is also the issue of drought. People dying. The government only comes in when Kenyans have died. 2.1 million Kenyans have died of, of hunger or at, are at risk of starvation. That's when it comes in to you know, drill the boreholes, fix the wells that are not working. And, and that's a problem because these things are supposed to be functional. This, they're supposed to be continually monitored and evaluated and checked to see that do they need maintenance do they need to be rectified? Are they mm-hmm. in good condition? That is something that needs to be done frequently. But our government only waits for the drought. So when we have the drought, that's when flings into action. And it shouldn't be that way. And the other issue that we also have in Kenya is that we have taxes and levies. So you find that the highlands in Kenya grow a lot of food as opposed to the, to the northeastern region. The highlands, they grow a lot of food potatoes, maize, all that, you name it. But for the food to move from the highlands to the northeastern region, that's like traversing several counties, the farmers have to pay taxes and levies because that's one of the ways in which the county governments get their income. And so that's very discouraging 
because if a farmer, I have to fuel my own truck and find farmhands to help me move the food from one county to another. And then I have to pay taxes to that county. Then that means I am undergoing a lot of losses. So I can't, I can't, I can't afford it because I have to, you know, look at my inputs and the outputs that I'm getting from this farming venture. Right, and there's no incentive, yeah. There's no incentive. That becomes extremely difficult for the farmers to be able to move food. If we had laws that allowed farmers to move food from one county to another without paying taxes, we would not be talking about issues of Kenyans dying of you know of, of food insecurity because we know that we have food. We, we have food from the highlands. Sometimes the food goes bad because there's lack of storage. But our brothers and sisters in the northeastern region are dying of hunger which is a complete failure on our government's part. Right. And if, if you take the government, I mean, one thing is that we can say governments need to change and we know that that's mm -hmm. not going to happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So what the people can do, I mean, you join Greenpeace and you're doing as much as you can, but mm -hmm. what farmers can do, what, the regular Kenyan do? I think what the farmers can do, and that's what we've been training them um, a lot, is to diversify because a lot of farmers in Kenya grow maize. Most of them grow maize. Maize is our staple food. So you walk into any farm, you just find maize. So when the, ma when the drought comes, because you know maize needs a lot of water to germinate, hey? so mm -hmm. when drought comes, everything is lost. So what you're teaching them is to diversify. We had the, the, the long-lost indigenous crops that our forefathers used to grow during the drought season that grow really well with minimal water. So we're teaching these farmers to sort of diversify, grow several crops on your farm so that if the maize dies, you at least have, you have the millet, you have the sorghum, you have the cassava, you have the indigenous vegetables because I know the spinach will die because it needs a lot of water. But the indigenous vegetables, such as the spider plant, will not die. Yeah. Yeah, so we're teaching them about diversification, like growing those plants that need minimal water to grow. Do you see younger people joining and, and uh, becoming farmers, kind of like ecological farmers, or they're staying away from, from that role? If you talk of younger people joining ecological farming, well, I'm a living example, am I not? <laughs> but of course, yes, um, we have young people who are who are enthusiastic about farming, who are joining this farming venture, who want to grow safe and healthy food. And it's really encouraging to see that movement of organic young farmers grow. And we are hoping that this picks up and we have more young people who are interested in farming because agriculture has a different role it plays in, in the community. And it's a very... It's a nourishing role that agriculture plays in the community. Apart from just, you know, sustaining livelihood, it, there's something fulfilling about working with your hands, just trying to grow food, learning from your failures, trying again. You know, it teaches you something, like most more of builds your character. It doesn't just sustain the livelihood, but, you know, sort of builds your character, you know, teaching you patience, teaching you how to do things in a different way, which is very good. And I'm hoping that more young people can actually join in. And... Um, in my case, how I can I get young people to join in is that I use my platform, like my social media platforms. Mm -hmm. I use them to give out information about, I talk about everything, pesticides, sustainable agriculture, 
agroecology, what can you do? What can't you do? I talk about literally everything on my social platforms. I talk about agricultural laws. You know, I talk about literally everything. How can you grow food in ports if you live in an urban area and you'd like to grow your mini hubs and stuff? So I also mm-hmm. talk about that. So you share your knowledge just like your grandma shared hers. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Claire, what is your favorite tree? My favorite tree. Let me think about that. Nandi flame. The Nandi flame, it has a red, beautiful flowers. Red, beautiful flowers. It's like when it flowers in Nairobi, you know, I just, sometimes I, I find myself just standing and gazing at it. It has like flaming hot red flowers. And mm-hmm. they're beautiful. Nandi flame is a beautiful tree. It has beautiful flowers. I adore it just for that reason. Like it gives me peace. It just gives me peace. When I look at it, I just, I'm like, ah, oh, that's, that's beautiful to watch. Oh my God. That's yeah. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Claire, for inspiring us and, and with your stories. And, and please don't be discouraged. Keep on fighting and keep on changing. Thank you so much, Tali, for having me. I really enjoyed having this conversation. I hope we can do this sometime again. And thank you everyone for joining me today. We are all beautiful butterflies, each in his and her individual ways. I wanted to thank you for joining me today in this episode. I really appreciate you coming on this journey with me and I hope you can join me next time. And remember, it only takes a small action to make a big difference. Be a butterfly. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to hear more of our stories of change. 